Welcome to the IEEE Blockchain Podcast Series, an IEEE Digital Studio production. This podcast series, entitled Research Notes in Blockchain, is hosted by Quinn Dupont, former assistant professor at the University College Dublin School of Business and founder of Alumni, a Web3 startup with a mission of putting university diplomas on blockchain. Quinn is also the author of Cryptocurrencies and Blockchains. In this episode, Gun Sarir, founder of Avalanche Protocol, explores the risks and rewards of moving from academia to entrepreneurship and shares his views on how blockchain can support credential management. He also discusses the science of distributed and applied systems and how new technologies are impacting governance and change management in blockchains. Thanks, Gun, for uh, joining us today. Uh, the first place I wanted to sort of start talking with you is about your transition away from academia, away from Cornell, and moving on to, well, first you founded uh, Ava Labs and then on to uh, Avalanche itself. And why this actually is kind of interesting for me is, is well, a couple of reasons. One, you know, you, you even tweeted, you said, academics need to sort of understand that they need to really focus on changing the world rather than just publishing kind of meaningless articles. And I, I think that's that's really important. And and maybe this even had something to do with my own kind of personal transition. I'm no longer at University College Dublin. And I'm now um, myself kind of uh, working on putting together a crypto startup. And so I wanted to just talk to you a little bit about entrepreneurship in this space and, and what your experiences were if you've got basically any advice for someone who is maybe thinking about trying to to real to make real impact in the world, any ideas there? Uh, sure, I have a lot of things to say to any academic uh, thinking about doing the transition to industry. So, um, first of all, academia tends to be quite incrementalist, and um, uh, and it's uh, it's quite uh, quite often the safe thing to do uh, is to do what we call slicing the salami. You. Uh, uh, you you take a, a path that industry is is following anyway, and um, you look around, and then you just decide, okay, so here are a couple of things that haven't been tried, and then you start publishing these things. And uh, a lot of the effort uh, that's spent like this tends to go nowhere. It's uh, it's work that would have been done anyway, or it's work that's not worth doing, and uh, and it's often work that's just so minutely improving on the state of the of the world, uh, often at some hidden complexity, uh, at the cost of some hidden complexity. So um, so that's a very common pattern. Uh, there are many other patterns in academia that I can talk about that, uh, that lead to people not having impact. Um, but on the flip side, um, when people have a great idea, um, it's incredibly rewarding to go out and, and actually change the world. The mission here in academia, the, the mission for any professor is to profess, is to go out into the public, to take a stance and uh, to stick one's neck out and to say, here is how the world ought to be. And uh, that's part and parcel of the ethos, in my view, of being an academic and um, uh, it's 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 absolutely necessary for for us to actually make a dent in the in the state of uh, of the world and um, and and of course the world actually values this if you do have a genuinely big improvement um, the rewards are quite substantial and it's been it's been a fascinating ride for me at uh, Ava Labs with the Avalanche Systems launch about uh, fourteen months ago 
And um, when there is a true need, when it, when the work is not, you know, as we call it, quote, academic, uh, when the work does actually have legs, then uh, it's incredibly fun and uh, and then just an amazing journey to uh, uh, to go out and change the world. Now, I should also say, you know, mention the following. There's nothing wrong with doing theoretical work. There's nothing wrong with doing work that's, you know, so far out that the world hasn't caught up to you yet and you can't really go out. That's perfectly fine. And that's, you know, I have a lot of respect for that. Um, but what, uh, especially in my area of applied systems uh, and, and distributed systems, we see a lot of incremental work that's, uh, you know, neither here nor there. It's not theoretical. It's not far out. Uh, and uh, and it's not making a dent because it's fixing a problem that nobody has. So, um, uh, so as I said, it's just been a fascinating journey. I encourage everybody else to do the same. I mean, this is also kind of scary, though. I mean, just personally, as I'm making this transition, uh-huh. uh, there's a lot of risk, isn't there, right? Like, I, I, yeah. I mean, I'm both whether or not you're going to be successful commercially, but also just I worry about um, if I have a, a research agenda, as you said, that might be a little bit theoretical or really pushing the boundaries. Does industry, uh, you know, is there room to support that in industry? That's such a great question. So there's, it's such a, there are so many risks, so many risks. So let's, uh, let's try and take some of them. So when, when, when you're an academic, the risks are well contained. You're playing a reputation game and, um, you know, and there's some horse trading going around, going on and, you know, you're trying to get your papers in, etc. Um, when you're out, and, and, but the game, that reputation game typically is played within, within well understood confines that you know what other people are going to do. Yes. I, I realize that there are all sorts of weird people out there and all sorts of bad situations, but in general, academics have a lot to lose and they, uh, you know, they, you know, the, the game can be petty, but, uh, but at least it's played within certain etiquette rules. Um, the real world is very different. All sorts of funny things can happen. Money is at stake. Very, very, uh, you know, strange things do happen all the time because, you know, if somebody is going to make, you know, an extra whatever thousand dollars, they will do anything for that. It's just it's insane what uh, what they will do. So um, so it's scary. And um, and there is all sorts of risk about taking ideas to market. The market might not be ready. Um, you might not understand what the market needs. You know, you, you, you maybe you, you've got everything going for you, except the personalities don't click with the people that you need help from, etc. So there are lots and lots of risks, and uh, and I don't know how to how to you know address any of them other than to say um, uh, the 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 rewards are great also. So uh, so it's worth it, and uh, and so so it's it's a calculus that everybody has to go through for themselves with their own idea. Uh, whether the rewards will will exceed the the risks that are that are out there, but in my case, and I think in general, whenever you have something that has a good product market fit, uh, the uh, it's just a no brainer that. Uh, um, and there is also some clarity to be to be had from a playing a, a wealth game, from playing a game where uh, the game is to just sort of change the world, you know, and and. Uh, and and it's not it's not a reputation game at that point. It's really a game of uh, taking something to market that people want, and uh, and the rules of that game are also very very clear as well. So there's a there's there's a lot of fun to be had. You're not subject to other academics' whims. Um, you're not trying to you know appease reviewer B and cantankerous mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> comments and so forth. So um, so there is that, and uh, and that's also a big win. Yeah yeah absolutely. Um... 
okay, so let's talk a little bit. I'm still partial universities. I mean, as I said, I just I just left my university, but um, uh, you know, you worked at Cornell for a long time, and uh, you know, to some extent, that obviously has informed what you've been working on at Avalanche and at Avalabs. Um, are there? What's the role of universities today? Then, what do you, big big picture? Big picture. I think post-COVID, that role is going to diminish quite a bit. Um, but, uh, but the role of, the, of universities is to equip people uh, with, with the skills that they need to be able to, to adapt to a changing world. That's really the big thing. Um, and, uh, and of course, it depends on you know, the, 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 the audience of, of each and every you know, separate university. Um, uh, so research universities versus teaching universities are slightly different in what they do and what they need to focus on. And, um, uh, but going forward, I don't think that, uh, that universities as we know them, um, you know, in the, in the form we know them are going to really survive that long. Uh, there are so many uh, in the U.S., as you might be aware, and uh, uh, quite a few of these are, are just unnecessary. It's just extra overhead. And um, uh, the IT uh, efforts, you know, we've, seen, we've seen information technology simplify um, a lot of things in life. And, uh, but it hasn't really changed the way universities work. It's, ironically, it hasn't been applied to universities. And um, you know, MOOCs are one way of trying to sort of do this, uh, but they are really trying to go for scale at the expense of survivability or, or sustainability of the effort, I think. And, um, uh, but I think we're going to see uh, efforts in the direction of, uh, you know, uh, maybe sharing some elements with MOOCs, uh, but really uh, attacking the the uh, the bloated uh, management that we see at universities. Do you really need to have, you know, in every state so many hundreds of universities, each of which with their own, you know, associate dean of this and that? And uh, uh, so that that I think is a is clearly. I guess I should just ask yourself, you know, what would Elon Musk do if he were in charge of a bunch of universities? It's very clear what would happen. And that's that's typically what will ultimately come to pass, uh, because the world, you know, loves efficiencies. And, uh, you know, of course, the current administrators will fight the tooth and nail, but that's the direction that we're headed. Right. So I'm hearing disintermediation and decentralization, which makes me wonder, does blockchain play a role here? Blockchains do play a role in just about every business uh, workflow going forward. Um, but I think when it comes to universities, the very first way in which they will appear is going to be through credential management. So universities are credentialing institutions. They give out uh, diplomas, they give out uh, certificates, etc., that, that attest to the fact that somebody has been well-trained and has the, the necessary, uh, you know, fiber to to take on you know if you're an engineer it's it mean just it means not just that you know uh you know the necessary math etc but you also have some ethics etc that uh, that make you a, a suitable person for that field so these are important things and they need to be recorded in a way that that survives the granting institution that survives the passage of time and um, there are many different uh, anecdotes that i can provide about uh, people's missing diplomas um, but uh, but it's very very important that uh, that records of this kind are kept appropriately. So the very first way in which we're going to see blockchains play a role is going to be with credential management. And uh, after that, the second step, I'm not sure where it's going to be, but probably within the, the internal uh, internal accounting of universities. 
I mean, that's actually the the area that I'm I'm moving into commercially. So that's wonderful to hear. But I was um, going to ask. I was going to ask what what, what area you were going to. What, uh, it, it is in fact diplomas. Uh, it's a real yeah. challenge though, because I've spoken to a venture capitalist who said to me, he said, "Well, look, Quim, uh, diplomas are a red sea. It's it's a dead zone, and it's impossible to make it work." But the key for me, I think, is that there needs to be a business model, an actual real business model associated with it, and which I think I've got. So. I'm, I'm hoping that with this, with diplomas comes a big shift in trust. That's kind of the bigger play, I think, mm-hmm. um, kind of going off what, you're, what you were just sort of saying about the role of universities. Oh, that's a, that's a very exciting area. So uh, um, both sorts, you know, certificates uh, for people who take, you know, continuing education courses and diplomas, um, you know, need to be managed by, via some external database. And, uh, uh, I can give you offline. I don't want to do it uh, online here. I don't want to name the country, but there is a country where uh, the uh, president is required to have a, a university diploma, and um, and they ended up uh, there's a there's a bunch of questions about the credentials of the of the president who got elected, and uh, there should never be any such question essentially, mm-hmm. and and it should be easy and 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 straightforward to look these up. But, you know, he went to one university, which changed his name, et cetera. The records were lost and no one knows if he really finished. So it's a strange thing. And, uh, but it, it, it changes. It changes so much. It seems like a small data record someplace, but it has such great consequences. And um, so absolutely, I think all, all record keeping of this kind should be kept um, by uh, uh, third party institutions and should be easy to consult and access. Uh, with appropriate privacy measures, so um, so absolutely, I think that's a great great area. So best of luck to you and your new yeah. venture. Yes, thanks. So um, I let I'm going to switch switch a little bit to some maybe some more slightly more technical questions if that's okay. Since after all, the the audience here is the IEEE primarily. Mm-hmm. Um, as I see it, I see that consensus and security are kind of basically solved today. You know, with Bitcoin. Uh, scale is basically fixed, uh, Avalanche and other next generation platforms. I think we're getting much better usability within blockchain, but of course, there's a long ways to go there. But for me, one of the big outstanding questions and one of the, the harder ones is governance, change management, and really just leadership, this question mm-hmm. of leadership. And I'm wondering if you could say a little bit about maybe how you imagine this to work both internal to Avalanche, but also... You know, if, if I was to adopt Avalanche as a tooling, what kind of uh, opportunities does it provide for, for answering some of these questions around governance and change management and leadership? Absolutely. That there's so much to unpack there. And, um, um, and so just in case there are people in the audience uh, who have only seen um, blockchains through the lens of Bitcoin, let me just say a few words about it, though. Um, so, uh, so Bitcoin did introduce the, the world's first decentralized, widely adopted currency, uh, cryptocurrency. And, um, and so that's wonderful. And, 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 and so on um, in, in that it's, it serves as an exemplar of what is possible. But it is not a good example of um, of, a, of a sustainable green consensus protocol. I don't want anybody mm-hmm. uh, thinking that I think that. Um, and uh, and it also has, as you pointed out or alluded to, uh, it also has some severe scaling problems. So uh, one of the main things that uh, we introduced with Avalanche is a new way of achieving consensus in a distributed system. 
It's a sustainable green system. It doesn't require the consumption of substantial amounts of electricity in the background. And um, uh, it does this by, uh, by a process of repeated subsampled voting. And, um, uh, and, and it ends up uh, achieving finality very, very, very quickly and uh, is able to accommodate uh, millions of hosts in the system. Now, um, going forward, so that's, that's the scale problem of, of blockchains along with the energy consumption problem um, uh, have been addressed with, these, uh, with, uh, with the Avalanche system. Now, uh, as you point out, um, there is a huge problem with, with governance and change management in blockchains. So um, what a lot, a lot of systems did, early systems did, was fix everything in stone. So essentially, what are they trying to do? They're trying to decentralize and take the human element out of the underlying system. So that's a laudable goal. That's a great thing to want to do. Um, and the easiest way of doing this is you just bake in the algorithms. You bake in every decision that could e ever happen in the future into the system on day zero. And uh, for example, in the case of Bitcoin, uh, the number of Bitcoins to be minted is fixed for all time. I can tell you exactly how many Bitcoins Bitcoin will be minting, you know, 17 years from now. It's just all set in stone. Now, um, the minting rate for a, for a currency is one of the most crucial economic parameters. And it, it ought to depend on external factors. It ought to be able to change. Why? Because macro conditions change. You know, at some, you know, if you look backwards, um, Satoshi ended up getting the minting rate just right some of the time. He ended up over minting some of the time and the price fell. And then he undermint some of the time and then the price goes up. And you can say, well, look, price going up is not a big problem, but price going down certainly is. And, um, and being able to, to respond to external stimuli is pretty important for any living system if it's going to be mm -hmm. sustainable. So... What do we do in Avalanche and what do latest systems do? In Avalanche, what we do is um, we, uh, we allow the coin holders to vote on key economic parameters. So the exact minting rate, for example, in Avalanche is determined by the votes of the people who are holding the coins. And uh, it can be sped up or it can be slowed down. The minting process can be sped up or slowed down depending on uh, how the community votes. So in essence, what we are doing is we're replacing and disintermediating the human element. The central bankers are gone. The political meddling in the system is gone. And instead, the people who are actual participants in the system uh, put, their, you know, put their votes down towards however they want the system to behave. And there's a second thing as well um, that we do that is absolutely crucial to being able to accommodate changes. So often what you want to do is you want to introduce something to a system and you may not be able to have the pull or the support of the community for that change. And in, in systems past, this meant that you would have to fork and create your own independent system. And we saw many, many, many different Bitcoin forks for this exact reason. You know, they want to change the block size and all of a sudden you've got you know, whatever is like seven different versions of Bitcoin, each with a slightly different block size or a block time. And uh, so uh, these, that's highly, highly undesirable because you're fracturing your user community, you're fracturing your liquidity, you're fracturing your funding. So um, what Avalanche does, and it's one of the very few systems to do this, is to provide this notion of what we call subnets. So you can create a subnetwork um, under the sort of the overarching umbrella of the bigger default network. 
And in your subnetwork, then you can uh, enact any rule set you like. You can run any virtual machine you like, subject to whichever uh, set of uh, set of decisions you want to make in that subnet. And uh, the subnets are isolated from each other, and they can, but they can communicate with each other. So you, your subnet can, for example, communicate with mine, and I can invoke. Uh, you know, I can send you assets. I can take assets from you, etc. So uh, this structure is incredibly useful. It's it's useful for change management, uh, clearly, and that was your question. But it's also useful for another use case um, that's uh, that was a dire need in this whole blockchain space, which was um, being able to accommodate jurisdictional differences. So. Mm. Um, you know, people with assets, you know, companies or institutions with large, valuable assets, they want to be able to open them up to the public. They want to be able to, to have them traded on a blockchain, but they can't get legal clearance because, you know, they, they're under legal obligations. They, they are supposed to, you know, follow certain laws. And, uh, and you can't just, you know, the blo- Bitcoin doesn't follow any laws. Bitcoin does what Bitcoin does. So uh, with subnets, you can actually create your own blockchain. Uh, so to speak, your own universe where the rules are exactly as you like. You can have a U.S. centric one where, you know, certain countries cannot participate. You can have a, a European centric one with, you know, GDPR rules and so forth in place. So whatever the, the legal requirements might be, they can be accommodated in these subnets. So that gives us two birds with one stone with the same same mechanistic uh, scheme. We can support both change management and differences of opinion among people who want to use different parameters, and we get to support different legal requirements. So I'm really excited about what's to come with this. It's a very flexible framework, and it's a very fast, scalable, and sustainable framework. Yeah, that I mean that's really that's a really impressive that how much you've been able to sort of fix with the couple of um, uh, changes there. I know it's, it's cool, isn't it? It's just a few technical tricks really. Um, There's more than one. (laughs) So there are lots of, I'm sure it's harder than it seems. (laughs) Yeah. There are lots of one trick ponies in this game where, you know, they have just one idea and then it's, they have a new chain. Uh, We ended up, uh, I ended up, you know, I've been in this space for a very long time and I ended up packing everything I knew from, from just distributed system science into the system as well as economics, I consulted many, many different, uh, we consulted many different uh, experts. And uh, the result is, uh, you know, there are lots of, uh, lots of pretty obvious sounding ideas, uh, but that nobody else had, uh, had thought of before, and, and certainly nobody else had combined. Yeah, so I want to get to questions around sort of the science of all this. But before, I just want to push you a little more on, these two, on this change management, just so I can get a better sense here. Subnet seemed to be really uh, an alternative to forking in some sense and, and mm-hmm. offering you these these really excellent um, differences, which I think is was, is really useful. But I feel like on the uh, issue of these endogenous changes, we seem to have a paradox still, right? Vitalik Buterin, of course, is a little while back, he, he wrote about um, the challenges of coin voting, coin-based voting. Mm-hmm. Do you see anything on the horizon that we can get away from this, this idea that simply... Uh, since we don't have true identities, we don't have one person, one vote. We're just going by, you know, whales potentially with making big, big, big changes. Right. That's a very good point. Uh, there are many instances where you want uh, to weight votes differently. So there, there are many different, um, uh, many different things one can do. Um, and so there's obviously one coin, one vote, which ends up weighting the, the whales heavily. And um, 
there is obviously also one person, one vote, which seems like an ideal, um, except then how do you determine what a person is? You'd suddenly need an oracle or some kind of a, uh, an authority on, on who's a person and who's not. And um, so that brings us to this whole notion of digital identity. It's a topic that's been discussed quite a lot. And, uh, um, it's, uh, and if you look around, there are absolutely no solutions that have been deployed yet. Um, but there are, there are technical solutions where, uh, whereby people can create self-sovereign identities, that is, identities that they themselves, uh, that, they, that they are in control of. They can get these identities vetted and they can use these, uh, these identities uh, for purposes of voting and other things. Uh, I think that's a pretty good answer, to be honest. I, I want to just, in the last couple of minutes I've got you here, I want to ask you a little bit about the science of decentralized systems. Are there, are there big, you know, wicked problems that are still out there that we're unaware of? Or are we finally now, uh, I mean, arguably one to three decades on in distributed systems, uh, mm-hmm. are, are we at a fairly mature science at this point? What do you, what do you, how do you feel that where the world is right now? I think we're just getting started for real. I think the opening, opening uh, uh, salvos have been fired. Um, I think Bitcoin paved the, the, the path for us. It showed us what is possible, um, but it just lacks the scale. I think Ethereum similarly is a fantastic system. It shows us what is possible with smart contracts. But uh, but it's got a lot of downsides. It's just not how you would design it if you had to, if you could design it from scratch. So uh, um, the outstanding problems, the long outstanding problems were scalability. I think that's been addressed. Uh, mm-hmm. The second problem was flexibility, being able to change, being able to add uh, new features uh, in a way that's compatible with, uh, with other people using the system. And I think that's been addressed with subnets. Uh, governance is an, is an ongoing issue. I don't think the last word has been spoken, mostly because decision theory is, uh, you know, there are, <laughs> there are there are all sorts of trade-offs in it. There isn't a single single outcome that I can just go out and and take and adopt. Um, it's uh, it's it's hard. It's a it's a fundamentally hard field. So, um, uh, but but I suspect that we'll be able to make headway in that space, especially if as we figure out a way to solve the the digital identity problem. And I, I believe that solutions to that, that uh, problem are coming. Mm-hmm. Uh, what other issues are outstanding? I think uh, there is um, this entire uh, discussion around Web3 and um, how that's going to take place is going to be fascinating. And Web3 is this big push to take control of information and data um, away from centralized service providers like Facebook, Google, and so on and give it back to the users. These centralized service providers, they essentially compile dossiers on all of us and they sell our data. And, and that's, it's just a terrible, terrible way of doing business. And, uh, and it's a terrible way of living one's life as, you know, just co- as we constantly leak digital information about ourselves and these other people are compiling it and trying to monetize it. So uh, uh, the, the alternative where the user is in charge of their data and they, they reveal selectively exactly however much they are comfortable with is a far more exciting uh, universe. And I'm really excited about the possibilities of Web3, but there remain many different problems, you know, ranging from cryptography, zero-knowledge proofs, and so on, all the way to game-theoretic issues that are outstanding. So that problem is, is long outstanding, and it's an exciting one. Another problem that's outstanding has to do with 
with what we've seen in DeFi. So in decentralized finance, uh, what we have are essentially financial instruments that are implemented as programs. So normally, you know, whereas normally you would go to a bank and interact with bankers and go through a very slow process uh, for doing whatever you want to do, um, what you can do with blockchains is uh, take advantage of, of their ability to run code and, um, and you interact with a program. And uh, these programs can do all sorts of exciting things these days. They can do, uh, they can lend money to you even uh, without having to see your ID. And uh, there's a whole discussion to be had about how, about how that might work. But uh, you and I can even at this very moment take out about a billion dollars and use it and return it. As long as we return it, it's all good. <laughs> and, uh, uh, within five milliseconds or so. But if you want to take out a billion dollars and run an arbitrage trade, you could do that with DeFi. It's an amazing c- capability. You do it without showing ID. You do it without any history. And high school kids from Eastern Europe are doing this to, to make money and, and they provide liquidity to markets. So, um, so these are all great. But what's happening in DeFi constantly, and, and this is where the challenge lies, is that um, the smart contracts end up having bugs in them and they get exploited. Mm-hmm. So, um, uh, so program verification and, and reasoning about correctness of programs is of paramount importance. Mm-hmm. This has always been true for humankind. We've noticed this, you know, starting in the 60s and on when the field of program verification started. Um, but, uh, but it's changed a little bit and I want to uh, to pull out for other academics what exactly is different this time. Uh, in the past, people focused on safety uh, properties and they focused on liveness properties. And both of these are important. You want your programs to be safe. You know, that is uh, bad conditions should not be encountered. You want them to be live. You don't want them getting stuck. You should be able to make progress. But there are other properties, especially in this domain. Um, and what are those? They tend to be game theoretic. Um, You don't want your contracts or uh, your systems that you create to have uh, dynamics that are undesirable. And that process of being able to reason about the dynamics of a a system set up by a a program uh, has not not gotten the attention that it deserves. So I'm really excited about about that area as well. So those two areas I I see Mm -hmm. as long outstanding um, actually deep problems that, that will require some smart minds. Is this, are these because money and value is just everywhere? Like, I think this is actually part of the Web3 promise. Um, it includes, uh, you know, this idea of ownership, taking ownership, self-sovereign identities and so on and so forth. But it seems to me that it's also the future is just going to be money, forms of money, and, and, and or just more generally value everywhere, which I, seems to be... Uh, the undercurrent behind these challenges, especially these game theoretic challenges. Absolutely. Uh, the, the, the world was always about uh, value, right? So it so was yeah, always about value extraction. So uh, I think as academics, we kind of shielded ourselves from it. But, uh, uh, but, uh, uh, but, you know, deep down, that's the game that everybody is playing out there in the real world. And, um, uh, and so when you see it so starkly play out uh, in, in the blockchain space, it's, uh, it's, it's quite uh, easy to spot. Um, and, and the nice thing about blockchains is such a contained environment that you can actually take some tools from engineering and computer science and apply it to them. Are you worried at all about, you know, some people talk about financialization as this thing that's going to 
um, erode humanity? Are, are you just a realist about this and you say it's going to happen anyways? Or you look forward no. to this? What, how do you feel about that? Oh, no, 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 no. I'm a huge humanist and I worry about that exact same thing. I hate transactional people and I hate financialization where every single interaction is a financial decision uh, or, uh, or, or people think about expected value from every financial, from every inter- human interaction. I think these are terrible. They erode the society in which we live. And um, I certainly don't run my life that way. In fact, I run my life in a way where I actively avoid such people. Mm-hmm. And um, certainly in the blockchain space, we see a, you know, a preponderance of this, this kind of thinking. Uh, it attracts you know, a certain type that's uh, kind of like this. But, uh, but moving forward, I believe in, in the sort of inherent goodness of people. And um, I think, uh, yes, sure, there will be people who will try to financialize everything. Uh, there will be people who will build systems that, that require you to make a financial decision. You know, do I interact with this web service? Do I give them a you know, tenth of a cent, etc.? But I suspect that those kinds of systems will not find traction. I suspect that the winning systems will be things that make sense to reasonable people who have a reasonable operating system. That is, they, they don't view other humans as, as, you know, people to extract value from, and they don't view every interaction as a, as something that, uh, that, uh, you know, that is financial. So, um, so I think, uh, you know, I think we're going to, we just aren't there yet. I think the early tries, the naive tries, et cetera, they, they will be in this direction. They have been in this direction. And I certainly share the concern, but um, deep down, I'm a humanist, and I believe that uh, that people will prevail, and they will build systems that are nice to use, and uh, uh, will not require you to have to make financial decisions every time you click on something. And uh, there there will be new models that emerge uh, that make it all convenient and uh, and seamless. Thank you for listening to our interview with Gun Sarir. To learn more about the IEEE Blockchain Initiative, please visit our web portal at blockchain dot i triple e dot org